Welcome to 050. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. I am delighted to introduce today's guest, Kieran Pereira, who is an activist, academic author, and storyteller campaigning on the social and environmental impact of sand extraction. Sand is the most consumed natural resource and a fascinating substance that is in almost every part of our lives from the food we eat, yes, you heard it, our electronics, the buildings we live in, and of course, the glass bottles and jars we should be recycling, note should be. We consume an unbelievable amount of sand and we're gobbling up mountains and dredging the seabed to feed our insatiable appetite for this unsung resource. Till I read Kieran's brilliant book, Sand Stories, I had no idea how important sand is and just how much we're consuming. Sand supports valuable ecosystem services, protects our coastlines, ironically from rising sea levels, but it is running out and it is definitely not getting enough attention in the sustainability debate. So Kieran, I'm so pleased to welcome you to Zero Five O, and to get us straight on sand. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So exciting. Brilliant to have you here. So I want to get straight in. And I mean, I was just totally flabbergasted on the amount of sand we're consuming. The fact it's an unsustainable resource and just the sheer volume of, of what we're doing. So can you give the listeners some headlines of what's the problem with sand? I mean, it's like we have this long list of ecological disasters. And what are we, what are we doing with sand that's causing us loads of problems? Yes. So the United Nations Environment Programme estimates that we extract about 50 billion tonnes of sand and gravel per year. And this is uh, the social and environmental and geopolitical impacts of this extraction is growing day by day. Now, there are a few things that complicate matters. The fact that there are different kinds of sand and not every kind of sand can, is useful as a resource for uh, specific uses. So you need really, really specific types of sand for specific uses. And like many other resources, these specific types of sand are found in very limited places. Also, the fact that this is a non-renewable resource in terms of human timescales. It is renewed in nature, but over geological timescales. So massive, massive takes like hundreds and thousands, sometimes even millions of years. And in some cases, there are, uh, so sand is formed by weathering of rock. In some places, for example, the Maldives, sand can be formed by the action of living organisms. So it can be formed through foraminifera or, you know, they're called forums or from the poop of parrotfish, things like that. So sand is formed in so many different ways. Uh, it depends on the geography and we're taking it for granted. So that's where the problem is. I was telling someone about how much sand that we produce and I, correct me, but it's 50 billion tons, something like 20 kilos per person for every person in the world every day of yes. sand that we're consuming. Yes, that's, that's just crazy, isn't it? Which 18 is kilos per person per day. Absolutely enormous. And what's, where's it going? Because, you know, people sort of think, oh, well, it goes into a road or a concrete building, but there seems to be a much wider, I was sort of staggered by the, how many, it seems, sand seems to be in everything. Yes. So it goes into not just, you know, the buildings we build and the, the roads we travel on, but 
We also extract minerals from sand that go into everything from paints to plastics to paper and these you know, pigments that are used in food. And we use sand also for energy generation methods like fracking. People may know that fresh water is, is a requirement for fracking, but they may not know that it also requires massive volumes of sand. So, yeah, we use a, a lot of it. Really? So we like to shatter the rock to release the gas with fracking. We're pumping sand in there as well, are we? Yes. So sand is used as a propent in that kind of method. That's the material that acts as a Hercules, if you will. It kind of uh, props the fissures open, and that's what allows the, the gas to escape. Wow. So we're using, like, presumably thousands of tons of an unrenewable resource to release another unrenewable source. Exactly. Yeah, I, fi- I find it hard to wrap my head around <laughs> that kind of... Do you think uh, that's the pinnacle of our sort of um, human destruction on the planet? It's sort of almost sort of layers upon layers of destruction. I hope we can turn the tide. For now, I'm hoping that talks like these, events like these can, with growing awareness, I'm hoping that we can turn the tide. And so the sand sort of um, in everything um, from sort of the white pigment in in milk and yogurt and white lines on the road and white paint through to fracking. But I was also fascinated to learn that there's different sorts of sands because there's the the phrase about not being able to sell sand to or the ability to sell sand to the Arabs. And it turns out that half of um, Dubai or one of the sort of uh, big cities is is in the Middle East is actually made out of sand from Australia, which is really quite extraordinary. Is that actually true? So there are uh, there are reports about how, you know, Singapore, Dubai are importing sand from Australia because they Australia has the ability to supply sand, which is sourced in a responsible manner. Whereas other places like Singapore's neighbours, for example, extraction was really driving huge amounts of damage and destruction. So what we need to uh, recognise at this point, though, and why this discussion is so timely and so important, is that the amount of natural resources that we are extracting for constructing buildings and our transport infrastructure in the 20th century, it saw a 23-fold increase. So we're talking about a non-renewable resource that we've increased extraction 23-fold, you know. That's clearly not sustainable, right? If, you, if you're talking about, if you think about it like the UNDP report says, if you think about it in terms of a bank account and you increase your expenditure that way, surely it's not going to last a very long time, right? Um, so, yeah. As I understand it, that we've got the sand that's suitable for construction, which is sort of the grains are more angular, We've extracted the easy to get part of that sand, so from beaches and from rivers and various areas. That's all gone. We can't use sand from the deserts because it's eroded by the wind. Therefore, it's round particles, not angular particles. Therefore, it's not structurally sort of robust, as I understand. Where are we getting the sand from now? And presumably, like digging it up from the beach and the estuaries and riverbeds wasn't a good idea anyway but are we are we going somewhere else now and destroying new ecosystems with our sort of sand extraction it depends on the context really so in developing countries a lot of extraction happens along riverbeds along riverbanks and lakes places like that as well as land-based quarries and in developed economies uh, we tend to get our sand from land-based quarries but also from the bottom of the sea and these are all licensed operations. 
in the developed parts of the world. However, what we need to understand is that this is a non-renewable resource and we are still talking about a growing trajectory of consumption. Uh, is this a path along which we can continue or, you know, where's the point where we uh, stop and take stock of the situation? And, you know, that's that's the question I'd like to raise. And presumably, if we're extracting sand, even if it's a licensed from an ocean bed, which is different to oil and gas extraction, because oil and gas really doesn't support an ecosystem if, if you've got oil in, a, in an oil well. But presumably, there is an entire ecosystem exactly uh, thriving on a on a seabed that gets hoovered up or destroyed when we extract sand exactly that's precisely the point every time we remove sand we are removing habitat for biodiversity you know for for wildlife the argument that i've often seen is uh you know fish can just swim away they can go to another place but you must consider the volume and the scale of it, you know the pace of extraction these are unlike any other resource that we use so it's really really massive and even if organisms can swim away they really lose access to places food sources to to mating grounds to spawning areas nesting areas things like this so we are actually diminishing the kind of habitat the quality of habitat available for species for our wildlife and we are jeopardizing their future and of course our future is intimately linked with the what happens to nature around us so we sort of talk about ecos it's relatively new concept about ecosystem services and that's everything from a bee pollinating a flower and obviously the atmosphere regulating the temperature on earth and different systems and are these are the sort of ecosystem services associated with sand well known because i know one of the things you've been doing is campaigning to get the united nations to actually take sand depletion as a serious issue because it hasn't been historically is there some research around the ecosystem benefits of the ecosystem services taking place around sand or is that still a relatively unknown area? I think it's growing in, uh, in importance. You find more and more researchers doing tremendous work in this area. And the UNEP uh, Grid Geneva has um, done some really interesting work. And when they released the report in 2019 uh, talking about sand and you know why, why it's one of the biggest challenges of the sustainability challenges of the 21st century. Uh, thereafter, they presented it at the United Nations Environment Assembly, and I think it has been adopted under two resolutions. So you find change happening, but of course, when you talk about, you know, at, at, at this level, change is always very, very slow, right? The, amount, the kind of change that we can make, it needs to be complemented by change that ha at the ground up level, where each and every one of us takes action. I've sort of got one last specific question, which is around, so lots of our listeners are sort of listening in because they use First Mile for recycling services and the key product that has glass or is made from glass is sort of bottles and jars that they recycle or should be recycling. Is there a lot of sand going into there? Is that relatively okay area or is that growing massively? Is that also problematic? So glass is an, is an extremely high carbon industry uh, because it takes raw materials have to be melted in a furnace that is heated to about 1300 degrees celsius that may not mean much but like if to put that in context the temperature of a volcano lava in a volcano is about 700 to uh, 1200 degrees celsius so that's about 1300 degree fahrenheit to 2200 degree fahrenheit you know for those so these raw materials have to be uh, heated 
and primarily they're, they're heated using fossil fuel sources, right? So high carbon fuel sources. So in addition, the raw materials themselves, it consists of sand, right? A large part of, if you talk about flat glass, for example, the kind of glass that, that goes into making our window panes and stuff like that, nearly 70% of the raw materials that goes into making these glass panes is sand, is silica sand. So container glass also contains a lot, you know, specific types of sand. And it's the more we use, and because we are in a linear system where we just take, make, and then dispose stuff, that's a problem. Uh, we cannot continue to extract sand at such volumes from our ecosystem without undesirable consequences. And it's part of the problem because sort of glass, there are interesting, uh, two interesting types of glass there's, because container glass is, has a short shelf life. Therefore, where it is recycled, it can be sort of put into a more circular economy. But I guess the problem is with buildings where concrete and uh, silica glass going into um, window glass, that material is then going to be locked up for 20, 30, maybe 50 years in the sort of built environment. And if we're sort of increasing at 23 times the rate as we were in the last century, we're locking up loads of these resources in a way that can't become part of the circular economy anyway. So therefore, while we're going to keep building, is it not inevitable that we're going to have to keep extracting or do we have to look at different sources of material and alternatives to sand? In in this part of the world, buildings are knocked down prematurely. They don't because market trends change, you know, things change. So they're not really locked up in, in that sense. They're wasted because much of it is sent to the landfill, right? So circular economy, I think, starts at the design stage where we consider the end of life of a product before it is even produced, right? We think about what's going to happen at the end of the life of this particular product. So if if a building is truly built according to circular economy standards, then uh, we make, I don't know, buildings can be uh, made to be disassembled. They can be made to be uh, reversible. <laughs> you know, they, you can be, uh, you can supply products as services so that upkeep of the product, you know, rests with the producer rather than the individual end consumer. So there are many ways to to bring in circularity into the built environment. And I think there's great research happening as well as great commercial enterprises that are working on this particular topic. So there's hope. When it comes to container glass, in in the EU, about 62% of the total glass production is container glass, right? So it's the largest sector in the EU. And it's quite interesting. I found it quite interesting that in uh, to learn that in the USA, for example, many cities are abandoning their glass recycling schemes because of concerns over profitability and you know challenges finding new markets stuff like that but you see a very very different picture when you talk about countries like Sweden or Belgium other places where they re- recycle over 90% of container glass i mean so what's the difference between these two and it's i found out that it was segregation at source and that's really so, so important. It's something that each and every one of us can take action on. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it is, it's such an easy product to recycle. The collection and the contamination of it and getting it back into the system is the thing that's the challenge. And if we can separate it at source, it makes, it makes a huge difference. So I think it is fascinating between two you know, developed countries and how, how different they can uh, uh, make it. So Kieran, what I'm intrigued. So what happened in your life and 
how did you get into sand and, and finding out about <laughs> sand? And, and, and what, how, how, so we sort of dived straight into the problem and I want to have a look at solutions in a second, but almost as a segue, I mean, how, how did you get into this? <laughs> Quite indirectly, actually. I, I, I was interested in water because water is a topic that's always close to my heart. And as I worked in the space of water, I, I realized that if we want to protect water sources, then we must protect the sediments, uh, you know, that, that kind of hold these water sources uh, because they're two sides of the same coin. You cannot protect water unless you protect the sand because sand often allows water to percolate in, down into the groundwater table. And then in the lean summer months, it kind of also allows water to spring back up to the surface, you know. So there's a very intimate connection between water and sand. And so I realized that Although a lot of corporates are taking action now on water and they've begun to recognize uh, their water footprint, it's as just as important to recognize that this does not come out of a vacuum. You know, there, there, is, a, there is this, it's important to look at it as an ecosystem. And so sand plays a very important role there. And if, if we were going to tell a story to the listeners, uh, sorry, putting you on the spot here, but a story of you've researched sand all over the world and if 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 the listeners were going to take away a story to tell to their children or to their parents or grandparents around the impact that we're having on sand from a social perspective or an environmental perspective what's the what's the story that comes to mind what's the thing that really sort of made you sort of sit up and think oh my god we're we're in a bad place with this I don't know if many of your listeners have heard that there is a sand mafia. Uh, there are people who, people get killed because sand is such a fundamental component of, of construction, right? In places like India and many countries in Africa and in China and Southeast Asia, many other places, uh, this, this is a huge, massive growing problem. But not just from I don't want it to seem like the problem is out there somewhere far away. You know, it is it is here, right here. Even even in uh, in the UK, for example, the biggest uh, there's a there's Loch Ness, which is the biggest largest freshwater body in the in the UK. Uh, we are extracting sand now. This has become legal in the in the, last year. The government gave planning permission to this activity, but it has it's a it's hugely contentious because it's the that particular site is a is a Ramsar site. It's a site of special scientific interest. It's a you know it has all the right labels basically, and yet we allow extraction in, in this particular water body, which means we're compromising uh, the protection the protected status of this particular water body, right? So, um, so there's, there's there are huge challenges because it's non-renewable in human timescales. What we need to think of it like if it's a, if you think of it in terms of a bathtub, the amount entering it is, you know, far less considering the amount we are extracting. So the, basically, we are losing a lot more from this bathtub than what is getting into the bathtub. So if we'd like to protect our landscapes for future generations and allow them to meet uh, their needs without compromising their ability to meet their own needs, then it's really really important we look at the uh, this particular resource because it's the world's most consumed solid substance. 
Brilliant. And then how, so what, what, what are we doing on the solution side of things? So I know that your organization, your cam, campaigning, sandstories.org, you're very much sort of focused on solutions. And what are the key solutions that we need to be looking towards, writing to our MPs about what's, how do we, how do we, how do we solve these issues? Thank you for saying that. So this is a, I think what tends to happen when we talk about environmental topics, it can seem like we there's there are no solutions and these problems are so big, but there are definitely solutions to this particular. When it comes to construction aggregate, for example, we can look at ways to reduce our consumption, to reuse uh, material, to reuse buildings as they are without demolishing them, to retrofit them, um, so that we don't end up destroying the inherent value and the embodied carbon within those buildings. When it comes to even, you know, the glass we use, whether it's, I mean, think of the amount of glass in our homes, right? The, the number of jars and spices and sauces and condiments and all of that, the number of jars in each home is like huge. Uh, so uh, think of how we can reuse those. But I think most importantly, it's about raising awareness about talking to friends and family and colleagues and uh, really raising awareness about this particular issue because it's not very well known at all. I mean, like many of these things, fashion is sort of drives the linear economy. I'm actually, uh, I'd never really thought about buildings going out of fashion, which is crazy really, isn't it? And, and, And knocking things down that have a perfectly serviceable life to rebuild them. Exactly. I mean, there can be pretty good reasons. For example, maybe the, uh, there can be higher standards to control heat loss and stuff like that. But the solution there should be retrofitting rather than pulling down the entire building. It should be seeing how we can refurbish the building rather than pulling the entire shell structure down. And I think that's interesting. And, and on one of the, um, I'm just trying to find it now, one of the things that you said in your book, which I thought was actually fascinating, is, and this is sort of the, political landscape of finding solutions and this isn't a direct quote it's my notes but you said something along the lines of that the pursuit of carbon-free energy at the pursuit of everything else is actually unhelpful and and politicians tend to say well we need to have a zero carbon uh, electricity supply chain but as you said you know if you have a a way of producing zero carbon cement out of renewable energy it's not much good if there's no sand because cement 70 percent sand are we at risk? Concrete, that... concrete is seventy percent. Uh, so cement is the glue that goes into making concrete, and yes. uh, concrete contains about, yeah, sixty to seventy-five percent sand and gravel. Apologies, yes. Uh, so, so the um, are we at risk? And I, I, I'm not by any way because I think politicians should be able to talk about more than one things at once. But is there a risk that we're going too far down thinking about energy without thinking about other, including sand, other resource depletion? I argue that we need to think about these matters i mean they need to be addressed in tandem with because i think one of the myths about uh, environmental things is that we we can fix the environment without considering things like social environmental justice or you know intra and intergenerational equity things like that these are really really important and so as i write in the book i mean presumably we have found commercially the the way to produce carbon-free fuel so that, that can be used in heavy industries. And this is being trialed out in, I, I think, uh, I can't remember exactly where, but it's, it is being trialed out. But if you don't address the fact that uh, sand extraction comes at this great cost to people and the planet, then it doesn't really solve the problem, right? So 
we do need to look at the big picture, the whole take a systemic uh, view of the whole thing. And if we were using less or making less concrete, would that renewable energy could be deployed elsewhere to um, reduce our carbon emissions in other places, you know, by retrofitting. So these things are, as you quite rightly say, interrelated. Yeah. Um, and, and when it comes to buildings, I mean, concrete is just, it's become the dominant mode of construction only over the last 200 years, right? Before that, we still found a way to build our buildings and uh, every every place had a soul, had a distinct identity and had a had a community that came together. I think um, there are lessons there for us. There's a lot we can learn from vernacular architecture and the way it's built. The, the architecture is interesting, actually, because um, I think it was on in Sandwars, the film around this, that the architects were saying that they, they learn all these amazing building techniques uh, while studying architecture. But actually, when they come to practice commercially, <laughs> everything's concrete. That's the only way you go. And it has just become the dominant building material by far, because sometimes you get people saying, well, you need to design in these things, which is right. But actually, even if you design things and if you don't, can't get somebody to make your building, it actually becomes quite difficult. So it sort of almost needs a, pin, a pincer movement. Yeah. And I think policy and tax have a huge role to play there. You know, for example, but there are movements like built environment declares, construction declares, right? So there are, these, are, these are pockets of people who act, recognize the problem, the twin crisis of the biodiversity crisis, the climate crisis, and they're taking action actively against these uh, so yeah there's definitely hope and our listeners are a proactive uh, bunch hello listeners and they all like to go away after listening to a, an, an episode of zero five oh and go and do something so what would your advice be for uh, listeners what should they do differently to help you succeed <laughs> uh, that's uh, so join me in my quest to find solutions to the sand crisis. I think it's a really, really underexplored topic. It deserves much more attention. So I'm going to share with you the story about, you know, one of the questions that you sent me earlier was about what or who would you include in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> and I found that question fascinating. And for, for me, I think I would like to uh, make an entry, a case for diatoms, which they are the microscopic giants of our world. And you might ask, what are diatoms and what do they have to do? Why are they, uh, you know, to be considered? Because they are, they are a very, very, they play an inordinately big role in the ecosystem. They are an, a very important climate regulator. They're kind of uh, responsible for about 40% of annual ocean carbon fixation as part of the biological pump. And this kind of activity is equated to the total impact of terrestrial rainforests. So they play a huge role, right? They feed everything from zooplankton to blue whales. And these diatoms, they kind of build their cell walls. Their cell walls are made of really, really intricate patterns of glass, basically. So they use dissolved silica in the water to, to build these cell walls. Now, what's really important, especially for your listeners, because they care about recycling and stuff like that, is that every atom of silicon that's derived from the weathering of rocks is recycled about 39 times to build the cell walls of diatoms before it is buried and uh, in the seabed. So that's really cool, right? I mean, imagine if our industries worked that way, if we kind of extracted a resource, but we used it and used it and used it until the, we extracted maximum value from that particular resource before we discard it. That would be such a wonderful way to build our world. 
Wow, that is amazing. So the first Mild Planet Saver Hall of Fame has now got diatoms in there. I've never heard of them. I'm going to go and find out more of them. But I mean, yeah, oh, I'll send absolutely. you some fantastic pictures. They're really, really beautiful. Oh, yes, please. That'd be amazing. Because and, and just that ability to recycle so many times is we have a lot, a lot to learn, a lot to learn from the diatom. Exactly. Amazing. So and if you it might be the same answer, but an object that you would never part with, you'd never recycle it. Have you got a precious object? Is it oh. your pet diaton? <laughs> uh, so for me, it would be, um, I, I tend to write a journal and I've written one since I was 15. So I tend to keep them with me. I carried them with me all the way from India when I came to the UK 10 years ago. And so that is something that's really precious and I wouldn't ever recycle them. Excellent. Keep Keep them close to you. And are you listening to any podcasts at the moment you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Yes, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to recommend Jeffrey Hart's uh, Building Sustainability podcast. It's really, really well made. He addresses really serious topics and makes it so fun and engaging. I really love it. Excellent. I'll give that a listen. So Jeffrey Hart, Building Sustainability podcast. Yes. Excellent. Yes. And sort of moving on a little bit from, from glass, because we've heard what you do, uh, sorry, from sand. You, you, uh, we've heard what you do to uh, help you with your sand quest. If you were uh, going to ask people to do one thing to help tackle climate change just one thing what would it be what do you think is the killer activity that people need to do to address climate change so given that we have a really limited window of time to address this right to make to stop things from getting worse individual actions can, are, are great and they can take us far but i think if we want to make real radical change then then the key to do it is through community so join the community that that is taking action on things that are important to you, whether it's whatever is close to your heart, find a community that's working on it and be a part of them. That's the one thing I'd like to suggest. And I like that as well, because there's actually increasingly been quite a lot of attention on people's individual actions. And actually, I think one of the things I talk about a lot is we need to get big corporations and politics and communities involved in change. And it's sort of been very much about Am I going plastics-free? Am I a vegan? Am I a vegetarian? Am I meat-free Mondays? It's very about individual action, which is important, but not at the cost of letting off big businesses off the hook and politicians. Exactly, yes. So, and I think that community element is, because we're all in it together. We're in it, we, we all live on one planet. So working together, I, think, I really like that. That's good. And what's the common myth around the environment that you'd like to debunk so there's we hear all sorts of weird and wonderful things what's the what maybe it is about sand in terms of the the thing that you hear said that really annoys you because it's just not just not the case (laughs) just the fact that we think we can solve the environmental problem without addressing justice social environment environmental economic justice i think um the two go together. Um, they should be addressed in tandem. So that's really important. Excellent. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's very very key. And do you think enough's been done in that area? I mean, probably not. But is it, I would like to see more being done for sure. Yeah. yeah. And what in what in what areas specifically around that? So looking at where where you know when we import stuff, where does it come from? Under what conditions are these? pigments produced, for example, if a lot of minerals that go into everything white around us, whether it's paint on our walls or our automobiles or the white stuff in your icing and coffee creamer and stuff like that. 
I mean, it depends on the geography. In the U.S., it's also used to whiten skimmed milk because we want our skimmed milk to look as full-bodied as the as our as whole milk, and that's not permitted in the EU uh, or the UK. And however, so so the the minerals that we extract, they are extracted from many developing countries like Sierra Leone, Madagascar, and uh, Vietnam, India. You know, lots lots of different places. Um, Really examining the kind of conditions under which they are, exam uh, they are extracted and who's benefiting and for how long. And these are really questions that we should be asking. And I think, yeah, I think that's the supply chain is so important because there was a politician from Cumbria talking about this new coal mine they're trying to open up the other day. It's so annoying because he was saying that our emissions as a country were really low and we had very low emissions. Um, and in the same way, good working environments. But actually, we've just exported lots of polluting industry, exactly. exported heavy, yes. heavy industry to developing countries where they aren't the same social work conditions, justice conditions or environmental conditions. So I think that's a really key thing to raise. Kieran, what's coming up that you're most excited about in the next sort of uh, six months, a year? So I'm excited about finally releasing my audiobook. It has been a labor of love and it's been uh, the pandemic here has, you know, <laughs> delayed my plans by several months. But I'm really happy that, that the recording is done and now we're in the process of editing and stuff. So I'm looking at it, uh, releasing it in uh, end of October, November kind of time frame. So I'm really looking forward to that. Brilliant. Well, that's a nice intro to your book. Can you tell us about the book and where readers can find out more about it? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. So uh, the book is called Sand Stories. And you, if you go to the website sandstories.org, there's a page that's dedicated to, to the book. You'll see endorsements from several key figures. You'll, you'll find also links to retailers um, that make it easy for you to buy. You can choose your favorite retailer. And it is, I, I've read it. It's a fascinating read. I mean, it's not enough to cover on a podcast, but there's just so many interesting story literally stories around sand sand stories and it is is a, is a fascinating fascinating subject and it's brilliant Kieran that you're actually looking at solutions as well because so often we sort of hear of doom and despair and I think the the doom is good to give the context but then moving on to solutions and how we how we get out of this is is, is really really important thank you so much yes absolutely i couldn't agree more i i hate doom and gloom literature as much <laughs> as anybody out there you know i i think Yes, absolutely rightly said, it's important to provide context and learnings, but it's important to take action. And, and that's where hope lies. Brilliant. And what a brilliant place to end with with hope and action, Kieran. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on Zero Five O. Thank you so much for being a guest. So interesting, informative. If listeners want to hear more, your website's very easy. It's sandstories.org. There's loads of resources and information on there as well as how to find the book. So, Kieran, thanks so much. Have you got any closing remarks for the listeners? No, thank you so much for having me. It's really such a pleasure. Brilliant. <laughs> it's been great having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you again. I'm Bruce Bradley, and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet incredible people creating solutions for a zero-carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zero Five O.